Father, we thank you that we can lean on you, that we can trust in you, that you are our protector, our mighty fortress, our strong tower, that we can sleep because you never do, and you're watching over your kids. Thank you. We trust in you, and we are here this morning seeking you. We long to gather near to you, to draw near to you and experience your presence, your fellowship. So come, meet with us even now and teach us from your word. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Turn to Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. That's page 655 in the Bibles that we give away. If you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand. Someone will bring you one. It's our gift to you, going through the book of Hebrews verse by verse. And we are at this wonderful section uh, that's entitled Drawing Near to God. I want you to imagine that you are dirt poor and you have no way of getting any money and you're hungry. You do have a key in your pocket, but you don't know what it goes to. Now, suppose that key actually fits a safe deposit box with $1 million in it. Now, because you don't know the truth, you are still in the bondage of hunger. But if you knew the truth, then you would be free from the slavery of hunger, right? You get the picture? Okay. The key, spiritually, is drawing near to God. To satisfy the spiritual hunger that's deep within your soul, it comes from drawing near to him, and he invites us to do that very thing. To draw near to God is our privilege and our responsibility. Let's look at our passage. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus, he has inaugurated for us a new and living way through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. Let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering, since he who promised is faithful. And let us watch out for one another to provoke love and good works, not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other and all the more as you see the day approaching. Do you hear God calling you? Do you hear his still, small voice drawing you to himself? Because he's here. He wants to spend time with you. He loves you. He wants, he's whispering to your soul, and he's saying, draw near to me. What greater privilege. That's what we see in this passage, and it's kind of, kind of, it's marvelous. In verses nineteen through twenty-one, we see the reason why we can draw 
near to God, and it is because that Jesus has paved the way. Uh, anybody read the book Pilgrim's Progress? Yeah? The whole rest of you ought to read that book. I mean, really, absolutely everybody, all Christians should read Pilgrim's Progress, okay? It's an allegory, fun read, easy read, although it's originally written by a Puritan, John Bunyan, so back kind of old English kind of days there. Uh, but they do even have an updated language one, so if you're not really into the King James kind of a language there. But I tell you what, I love it. It, it, it really does. But anyway, so pick one of those and read it, because here's, it's an allegory of this guy. He's called Pilgrim, okay? And he is on this journey, and then he, he walks through the slough of despond, and, and that's when he gets saved, and the, the burden of sin falls off his back, and he becomes Christian, okay? And, and then he begins his journey. So he's walking along this path on his way to the celestial city. And on the journey, though, he continually will veer off the path. You ever done that? Okay. Bad idea. But, you know, but, but then he gets back on the path and he's on that path, okay? Jesus has made that path for us. He has paved the way for us. And that's what we see initially here in verses 19 through 21. See, we see that the crucifixion made it possible for us to enter God's presence. He says, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary, that's the very presence of God, through the blood of Jesus. He has inaugurated for us a new and living way through the curtain that is through his flesh. Jesus, who became a human being, died on the cross, shed his blood so that our sins could be forgiven. He's paved the way so that we can enter into his very presence. Albert Moeller in his commentary He says, the sanctuary refers to the most holy place in the tabernacle. No one could enter it except the high priest who could only go inside it once a year under the strictest supervision. If anyone besides the high priest entered the most holy place without permission, they died. Now, however, on account of Christ's work on the cross, believers can enter the most holy place with confidence. The hymn, There is a Fountain Filled with Blood, by William Cowper, captures the role of Christ's blood beautifully. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. Wow. Jesus died on the cross so that our sins could be forgiven, so that we could be cleansed and enter into the very presence of God. Of God, And he says here that we have boldness to enter the sanctuary. That word boldness, it means confidence as well. We're confident not in ourselves, but in Christ and the sufficiency of his death on the cross. The boldness we have to enter God's presence is in contrast to the restrictions made on God's people under the old covenant. So the new and living way through the curtain is Jesus. 
Jesus, it says in John 14, 6, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Now, that word way literally means path. Jesus is the path. But he says, and no one comes to the Father but through me. So we see this very much this exclusivity that Jesus is is stating here, that he is the only way, but he is the way that we can enter into the presence of God. And we as Christians, we don't say this because we think we're something great, because we're not. We say it because he is someone great. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He's the path, and he's paved the way for us. And then we see he's our high, our great high priest. We've seen this in the book of Hebrews already a couple different times, but he says in verse 21, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, because of this, he is our great high priest, and he has brought forgiveness to us. Forgiveness. Um, Remember Christ's prayer on the cross? Father, Forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. Father, forgive them. Was his prayer answered? It was. In Acts chapter 2, in Peter's sermon, it declares that they, many of them, did receive forgiveness. The very ones that killed Jesus responded to Peter's sermon. Can you picture the scene? One comes up to Peter, and he says, I spat on him and clamored for his death. Can I be saved? Peter says, repent and believe, and you can. Another says, I I thrust the crown of thorns on his brow. Is there still hope for me? Another says, I pulled out his beard and I punched his face. Can I be forgiven? Another says, I drove the nails in his hands. I put them up on the cross. Is there hope for me? And Peter says to each one, yes. Repent and put your trust in Jesus and you will certainly be saved. And if that's true for them, that is true for all of us. No matter what you have done, he is our great high priest and has provided forgiveness for our sins. In Hebrews chapter 4, verses 15 and 16, we see he said this before. He says, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. We'll see that in just a moment. For we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are yet without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. The author of Hebrews kind of repeats himself, doesn't he? 
This is really almost what we just read, isn't it? And that's okay, isn't it? We needed to be reminded of this, that he's calling us to draw near to him. Then we see in verses, verse 22 that the initial drawing near. So we all, just like Pilgrim, he has to walk through the slough of despond where the, the burden of sin is taken care of when he puts his trust in the cross, okay? We all initially have to draw near. In other words, we must receive the benefits of his salvation. It's not enough to know that these things took place. We must personally receive the benefits of his death on the cross. And he lists them. Look at what he says in verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. And what he's saying here is faith, repentance, and baptism. And that's what he's referring to. First of all, faith. A true heart of faith he says, with a true heart and full assurance of faith, not just an intellectual assent to facts. Full assurance means total surrender. You are trusting in God. You are trusting in Christ with your whole life. It's a total, total surrender. By the way, you don't just try Jesus. You surrender. You think about it long and hard, and when you're ready and when you believe, you surrender your whole life. There was this overzealous guy in New Orleans. I never met him. Might even be a girl. I don't know. But all over New Orleans, you see everywhere the graffiti, and it says, try Jesus. And I really know he meant well, okay? But you don't try Jesus. And then if he doesn't work, you try something else or whatever. No, you surrender to Jesus. That's real faith with full assurance. Romans 10 verse 9 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that means you are trusting in him as your Lord. You are surrendering to him as Lord, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. And so we have this real faith. But then repentance. In our passage, it says, uses this kind of curious language, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. You see, we all have an evil conscience. Every one of us has sinned, right? Anybody? Not? No? Okay. We all have this evil conscience, and we need this cleansing, this sprinkling that comes from repentance. I want you to look at Luke chapter 24, uh, verses 46 and 47. Here, we could look at a number of different passages that bring this out, but I thought it'd be a, a good idea to just look at what Jesus had to say about this. In Luke 24, verse 46, this is right before his ascension up to heaven, after his death and resurrection. It says, He also said to them, This is what is written. The Messiah would suffer and rise from the dead and, the, and, and rise from the dead on the third day. Notice he describes this is what God provided. 
Jesus would die and rise from the dead. Verse 47. And repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning at Jerusalem. Jerusalem. That is how we receive the benefits of his death and resurrection. It is through repentance. Repentance for the forgiveness of sins. In other words, if there's no repentance, there's no forgiveness of sins. Now, repentance... What that means is it's a change of mind and heart about your sin. You come to a place where you realize sin is bad. It is what has wrecked this world, and it is bad. I wished I wouldn't have done it, and I don't want to do it again, but, oh, God, I cannot stop. Save me from my sin. That's a heart of repentance. That's what he's calling for to bring about the forgiveness of sins. We see in Proverbs 28, 13, it describes, it's a good description of repentance. Look at that. Proverbs 28. Love the Proverbs. Great wisdom. Proverbs 28, verse 13 says, The one who conceals his sins will not prosper, but whoever confesses and renounces them will find mercy. So you confess them to God. God, this is what I've done. I renounce it, Lord. I don't want to live like that again, but I need your mercy. That's true repentance. That's a heart of repentance. So we see in our passage here, first he says that initial drawing near, in order to receive the benefits of his salvation, faith, a real faith, and Repentance, And by the way, with true repentance, forgiveness and cleansing takes place. Because we're guilty, so we need forgiveness, but we're also defiled by our sin. So we need that cleansing, and that takes place from this idea, this, from a true repentance. Albert Moeller, he talks about this and then brings us to the last point as well. He says, it is, compre- it is a comprehensive cleansing that purifies us internally, not just externally. The language of washing also suggests a beautiful image pointing to baptism as a picture of salvation. In baptism, we are graphically buried with Christ and beautifully raised with him in newness of life. It is the external symbol of the internal work accomplished by Christ. And so he goes on to say... Uh, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water, a reference to baptism. Now, baptism doesn't save you. There's nothing magical in the water itself, but it is the outward expression of that inner faith that does save us. So God calls us This is how they did it in the New Testament. They repented of their sins, placed their faith in Christ, and outwardly expressed that in baptism. And baptism gives this beautiful picture. Romans 6 describes it as a burial. You're buried down in the water, dying to the old way of life, and then rising again to newness of life to live for him. Jesus is Lord. In fact, in the New Testament, they just assumed that all true believers were baptized, that when you repented and placed your faith, you got baptized. In Galatians chapter 3, verses 27 through 29, we see an instance of this. 
Galatians chapter 3, Paul is writing, he says, For those of you who were baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ. There is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male and female, since you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs, according to the promise. And so notice he just assumes that the true believers were baptized into Christ and they have been clothed with Christ. And so together, this is how they presented the gospel. Okay, in the New Testament. If you remember Acts chapter 2, what should we do? Repent and be baptized. So we see this, this concept initially drawing near faith, repentance, baptism. And then the last part, verses 23 through 25, we see our part in drawing near. So once we're saved, then the continuing on the path that Jesus has paved the way for us to walk, this continuing of drawing near to God and receiving over and over the benefits of the cross and living the life that God has called us to. It's what we're seeing here is that there's both an individual and a corporate aspect to drawing near, okay? So there is that understanding that you personally draw near to God. You experience his presence. Yeah, that could be anywhere at any time, right? But there's also a corporate nature, a corporate aspect where we together draw near to God. And boy, in the presence of God, that's when real awesome stuff happens from the inside out, right? Okay, so here he's calling us. Look at verse 23 through 25. He says, let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering since he who promised is faithful And let us watch out for one another to provoke love and good works, not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other and all the more as you see the day approaching. Here we see uh, three third-person imperatives, okay? (laughs) He says, let us... And that's an imperative in the third person. Let us draw near with a true heart, full assurance of faith. Verse 23, let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering. And verse 24, let us watch out for one another to provoke love and good works. Let us draw near. Let us hold on. Let us watch out for one another. He's already said that in chapter 4, verse 14, as we saw this first part. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. So we need to hold on to the confession, okay? What's the confession? It's really simple. Jesus is Lord, okay? Remember Romans 10, 9? If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. The confession is Jesus is Lord. He is my Lord. This is the first confession that we see in the scriptures. And and it's the shortest one too, by the way. There's a couple others though in the New Testament that Paul actually brings out. These are confessions that Paul didn't originate, okay? He wrote them in his writings, but he actually claims they came from somewhere else. 
that they are things that were passed on to him. They're actually in a poetic form, so we know that these were things that the early church provided for people to put some structure on. This is what we believe as God's people, okay? And as I said, he says they were passed on to him, and then he's passing them on to the rest of us. So, and probably at his baptism, that Paul, when he got saved and baptized, he was probably passed on these confessions. So it's possible that these things date right way back. Jesus, Paul got saved about a year after Jesus died and rose, again, and rose again from the dead. So probably a year after. In other words, this is what the early church from the very beginning believed. Let's look at a, the, these two here. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. This is kind of an interesting one because he's almost on the side as he's trying to teach the Philippians, I want you to be humble. And then he remembers this confession. So he says in verse 5, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. And then verse 6 through 11, we see the confession. Who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, this is a little bit more, little bit more lengthy confession, isn't it? Notice how it ends, though, same as the first one. Jesus is Lord. Okay, but he, he puts some structure to it. You got to have the right Jesus. And the Jesus who is Lord, it says here, he is God who then became a human being, took on a second nature, that of humanity, died on the cross, rose again from the dead. That Jesus who is both God and man, that's the one we confess is Lord. And you have to have the right Jesus. In fact, 2 Corinthians chapter 11 says there is another Jesus. Just because you use the name Jesus doesn't mean you have the right one. The Bible says it's this Jesus who is both God and man and who died on the cross for our sins and rose again from the dead. Every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. Look at the next one, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 8. Now, Probably the confession stops around verse 6, okay? But um, what we see here is this confession. He says in verse 3, For I passed on to you as most important what I also received. Now notice, he's admitting, I received this. This is what I'm passing on to you that somebody else gave to me, probably at his baptism. And he says, so I'm passing it on to you. In fact, those scholars have dug into this thing, and they've found what they call several non-Pauline phrases, okay? That means stuff that Paul normally in his writings didn't say. He didn't say it this way. You know how we all kind of use our language a little differently, right? You know, 
when you're listening to me talk, you know, you're tired of hearing some of the phrases I say or whatever, but we all have, you know, even an accent maybe. Do I have an accent? Yeah. <laughs> I have because I have lived, I've lived in the South, so I have a little bit of Southern. Boy, I tell you, when I get down there, it comes out a lot more. My son lives in North Carolina. He sounds just like a person in the South now. It's hilarious, isn't it? Where's Elizabeth? She's a, but anyway, um, and then, but, but I got that, but I'm also from Minnesota, so I go to Minnesota. You know, they got all that kind of thing. And, and I was actually born out West, so I, you know, and I lived, I lived in New York. So, you know, well, anyway. All right. Well, I digress completely. Here we are, back to the confession, okay? Non-Pauline phrases. He's passing on what he received. Look what he says. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Probably that's the end of the actual confession. But then he goes on because he notice the confession is that Jesus died on the cross, was buried and rose again from the dead, and was seen by eyewitnesses. That's the confession. But he remembers, oh, you know what? There's more eyewitnesses too. So he adds on to this and he says, uh, then he appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time. Most of them are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one born at the wrong time, he also appeared to me. And here's our confession. And he says, hold on to that. Don't let it go. He's been giving these warnings in the book of Hebrews. You've got to hang on. You've got to stay with it. Hold on to the confession. Let us hold on without wavering, since he who promised is faithful. There are other confessions. The Apostles' Creed is a good one. We have the Nicene and Chalcedonian creeds, which really hammered out the the person of Christ and the doctrine of the Trinity, and those are really good creeds to go by. Okay? Later on, the Lutherans came up with the Augsburg Confession, and there's some great stuff in there. And then there's some Lutheran stuff in there that you know. But, and, that, and then there's the Westminster Confession, and, and that one is even longer. Man, I'll tell you what, that one's a really long one. And there's some great stuff in there, but there's some Presbyterian stuff in there too. You know? so you, but, but, but here are the biblical confessions. That's what he's talking about, right? Okay. Hold on to these, these confessions, especially Jesus is Lord. And the, and the point here is you cannot embrace heresy. That's what he's calling us to. But then he goes on, he says, watch out for one another, verse 24. Let us watch out for one another to provoke love and good works. You know, some churches excel in the art of navel-gazing. They're constantly focused on themselves, me-centered churches. And that's not what God intended. He wants us to be other-centered and God-centered. My personal relationship with God is critical to God's overall plan, but not at the expense of being others-centered. We need to consider each other. I believe very strongly that the life groups is where that really happens. Because I can't possibly know every one of you and where you're at, right? 
But in the life groups, you have people that you grow to be able to trust, and you speak and you speak into each other's lives, and you recognize and you help each other out so that you're not falling into terrible things and, and horrible things. This is a place where you can be safe. And God wants us to reach out. He wants us to take care of each other and reach out to the world too. And so we see this, this idea uh, where we're supposed to watch out for one another, be open, doing life together. That's what happens in the life groups. But then he goes on and he says, be regularly involved in a local church. He says, not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other and all the more as you see the day approaching. That word for gathering together, don't neglect that. It's episunagoge. Try to say that fast. Okay. Did you hear the word synagogue in it though? Episunagoge. Okay, it has synagogue because that's the word that means gather together. Okay, but it has a formal religious context to it. The synagogues regularly gathered together. The early church simply borrowed the synagogue practice and gathered together much like the synagogue where they would gather together regularly, study God's word, sing praises to God, pray, and so forth, okay? So, so, there's, so in fact, one translation says not staying away from our worship meetings, and that is a good translation of this word because that's what he's referring to here. And so he says be regularly involved in a local church. We see this pattern, this this principle in the book of Acts. I want you to turn to Acts chapter 2, verse 42. Because what we see in the book of Acts is that they gathered together on a Sunday morning in a large group, and they also gathered throughout the week from house to house in the small group, what we call life groups. Look what he says in verse 42. This is after, on the day of Pentecost, a bunch of people get saved, and then here's the results, verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. That's primarily the New Testament. To the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer, okay? So we see this devotion together that they have. Look at verse 46. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple and broke bread from house to house. So notice the two concepts. In the temple, that was, took place, we know from other passages, on Sunday morning. So they gathered together in a larger group. This is the first church. It was the Jewish church. And in Jerusalem, it was too big to meet in a house, Okay, they gather together in the temple, and they also regularly gather together in smaller groups from house to house during the week. Uh, by the way, there's a, a movement called the house church movement, okay? And, and they claim that the early church only met in houses. It's simply not true, okay? Not historically. Historically, they met in the temple, in large group settings, they met, they rented facilities. We know that Paul rented a facility. They, so they rent. We also know from the first century on, they actually built churches, buildings to meet in, okay? We know that just from history. 
from archaeology, okay? Uh, yes, they got persecuted, so sometimes they got, had to get rid of those buildings, but they did that, okay? So, that's, so there's this large group setting and this house-to-house setting. And both are necessary, as we see in the Scriptures. These other passages in Acts, it shows it again and again that this was the pattern. In fact, I love Acts 20.20, so let's go ahead and look at that one, okay? I like 2020 because it's kind of like 2020 vision. I didn't make that up. Somebody else did it before me. But, but it is true. Look at this. 2020 vision of the church. He says, you know that I did not avoid proclaiming to you anything that was profitable or from teaching you publicly and from house to house. So large group setting and the small group from house to house uh, setting So the Sunday morning service and the life groups, that's the pattern that we see in the early church. But he says in our passage, not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing. So why were some in the habit of not regularly gathering together? F.F. F. Bruce gives some thoughts. He says, but towards the end of the apostolic age, we are made aware of a tendency in some quarters to withdraw from the Christian fellowship. At first, and indeed always, says Harnack, there were naturally some people who imagined that one could secure the holy contents and blessings of Christianity as one did those of Isis and the Magna Mater and then withdraw. Isis is not the same Isis as we think. It was a cult back then, okay? Uh, Or in cases where people were not so short-sighted, levity, laziness, or weariness were often enough to detach a person from the society. A vain, glorious sense of superiority and of being able to dispense with the spiritual aid of the society was also the means of inducing many to withdraw from fellowship and from the common worship. Many, too, were actuated by fear of the authorities. They shunned attendance at public worship to avoid being recognized as Christians. Now, notice here, uh, he gives a few things. One, one reason why some were avoiding the regular gatherings was they had this good-to-go attitude, okay? In other words, you get baptized, you get confirmed, and then you're good to go. You don't have to do anything else, you know. So that that was kind of the attitude of some, and that is not good. By the way, can I be a Christian and not go to church? I'm going to answer in a way that you might find a little strange. I say no. Now, I do not mean that there aren't real Christians who don't go to church. Because there are, I've met them. I do a lot of engaging with my community. I actually love going house to house and talking to people. I know that's kind of scary, you knock on the door, you know, that, but it's, it's a kick to me. And, but I have found, both Elizabeth and I have found many people who were genuine believers, but because they were hurt, something happened to them, they were no longer going to church. So I'm not saying you can't, there aren't Christians who don't go to church. I'm saying you can't be a Christian. You're not living out the Christian life, the walk with Christ, because this is his plan. And I know we do hurt each other a lot. You know, sheep bite. 
We hurt each other a lot, but we cannot abandon God's only plan, and that is to reach the world through the church, through local gatherings of God's people, regularly gathering together. Another excuse is laziness. And there's always an excuse. There's always something more important. Um, And let me say this. Your kids are not even more important than gathering together on a regular basis. Matthew 10, verse 37 specifically states that. In fact, if your kids, if you think putting your kids first and that by keeping them out of church is actually helping them, it is not helping them. It is showing them a pattern The church isn't that important. And God is saying regularly gathering together uh, so we can make excuses. Pride. I don't need others. Um, I can do it on my own. I had one guy tell me, actually more than one, use the same phrase. I don't know if maybe they knew each other or what, but he said, my church is my back porch. No, it's not. Church is the gathering together of God's people to experience God's presence, to draw near to God together. Now, probably what's going on in Hebrews is fear of persecution. Remember what's going on in this particular, uh, the writer of Hebrews is writing to a Jewish church that's beginning to be persecuted, and some of them are being pulled, being tempted to go back to their Judaism where they wouldn't be persecuted. And so fear of persecution is going on, and he's telling them, hold on, don't give up, don't do this, and, and especially all the more as you see the day approaching, as you see the end times approaching, make sure you draw near unto God, regularly gathering together, and not just coming to church, but getting involved in the church, finding your spiritual gifts and getting involved. I want to say this. Church is awesome. I love getting together here, okay? I like just being with y'all. I love preaching, okay? And you're thinking, well, yeah, but stop it, Larry. It's getting late, right? Okay. (laughs) All right. But I really do. I get a kick out. I get charged by this. I even more love my life group. I'm telling you what, I get replenished. I, there's just something about it. This, and sometimes churches work, right? Sometimes it is hard. Yeah, sometimes it's work, but that's okay. We do it together, and stuff happens. I want to finish with 1 John chapter 1, verse 3. Let me read what John, one of the representing the apostles, what he says about their relationship, actually seeing Jesus and spending time with him on this planet. Look what he then says to us, verse 3. What we have seen and heard, we also declare to you so that you may also have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. He's saying, he's inviting all of us to have fellowship with each other, but also to have fellowship with the Father. The creator of the universe, we together 
get to have fellowship with the Father and his Son, Jesus, the one who died on the cross for our sins. He's saying we can experience his presence even now. Now, is that a privilege? I kind of want to do that. Will you want to do that? Have fellowship with him. Let's have the worship team come up, okay? And let's, let's worship, and we're going to fellowship together, but we're going to fellowship with God in his presence as well, okay? So let's stand.